You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jem Kassang and I, Niels Kastroblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Jem, great to be back with you this week to kick off the new year. How are you doing? How was your festive season? Good. Happy New Year. Yeah, 2024. You know, another another trip around the sun. Um, yeah, it's it was a, obviously a very eventful year. Um, for myself, for markets, um, you know, good time to sit and reflect and think um, towards the future, obviously, um, and uh, did a lot of that. Um, got a little, a lot of downtime with family, and uh, you know, excited to start the the new year. Yeah, and actually, that's kind of what we're going to be doing today. Maybe a little bit of a different episode than normally because it is the beginning of a new year. It is the first episode of the Systematic Investor in 2024. So both you and I uh, felt they would be a good idea just to, uh, um, you know, discuss a little bit about what we expect uh, from the uh, the year ahead. Before we dive into uh, all of that exciting stuff uh, and the topics that you brought along very kindly, since we last spoke, which is like a month ago when we had the group conversations, um, is there anything other than what we're going to be talking about in a few minutes that's kind of been on your radar? Anything that you've noticed that you thought hmm, that's well, kind of interesting? Yeah, I think I think uh, you know the two big things um, are one, um, kind of the Fed, uh, you know. I want to call it pivot or, you know, after today's data, we'll, we'll see that kind of the mission accomplished banner, right. Uh, and, and what that, uh, really means. And, and I think that's an interesting thing to get to. Um, you know, I think it's, it's the big question on, on market's head, is this transitory 3.0 or is this actually a turn? And then, uh, the other big one would be geopolitical, you know, what's happening in the Middle East and the Red Sea and how it continues to move along. I think we'll get to both of those as the show goes on, but I think those are the two biggest developments, and I think they both have the major far-reaching implications for what will happen this year. Yeah, well, couldn't agree more. And you just mentioned the uh, December jobs report that came out uh, only a few minutes ago where they were expecting 170,000 jobs added last month. It came in at 216,000 and an unemployment rate at 3.7%, which is, as you rightly say, doesn't quite jive with the pivot, uh, if we can call it that. But we'll see. We'll see. It's early days in the year. Before we dive into the topics, let me, as usual, just give a quick uh, update on trend following. And since the year just ended, let me recap December, where we really saw a continuation of what started in late October, uh, which was this massive trend reversal in stocks and bonds that kept finding new Fed statements and FOMC minutes to refuel itself on. Now, the good thing is that many trend followers, in, you know, had actually started to turn bullish again on equities uh, after going flat-ish uh, over the summer period. But I think most longer-term models would still have been short across the curve in fixed income markets. And overall, that led to a loss uh, in December. Um, but, you know, also the Fed, quote-unquote, pivot, if I can call it that, uh, it did also have an effect on currency markets um, where a combination of some new tones from the BOJ saw the yen surge 4.5% in December alone. Uh, and that obviously came against some short positioning uh, among CTAs and hedge funds and so on and so forth. And to round things off, maybe some markets that people don't follow uh, as much and what, you know, a, a year that I would you know, like Andrew did in our group conversation, Jim, he called it the year of the whipsaw. And I completely agree. We did have some pretty big moves in December. I mean, sugar fell 21% alone in December. Uh, and that certainly also inflicted a little bit of pain uh, for, for the trend following crowd. Yesterday, my trend barometer finished at 48. It did finish uh, the year actually much higher, much stronger. So we'll see how that all plays out. Uh, CTAs this week have had a little bit of a soft start uh, the first few days of trading, but just to round off the year as a whole, uh, December 
2023, we saw the BTOP50 down 37 basis points, so the year ended at down 1.36%. The SOCGEN CTA index was down 82 basis points in December, down 3.5% for the year. SOCGEN trend down 32 basis points, down 4.17% for the year. And the short-term traders index gained 46 basis points and was down for the year 1.77. Actually, quite small losses, even though some people are quick to say, oh, not a great year for for CTAs. I would argue the opposite. Uh, Managers have generally given back uh, about 15 to 20% of last year's gain, and I think that's pretty pretty decent. Now, of course, we couldn't compete with the um, traditional assets. MSCI World up 4.8% in December, finishing at 21.77%. World Government Bond Index up another 3% or so in December to finish 4.76% higher for the year. And the S&P 500 obviously charging away up 4.54%. Um, nine weeks in a row, I think, longest winning streak, uh, weekly winning streak since 2004, and ending the year at 26.29%. So, very good year for those uh, markets, uh, complete opposite of what we saw the year before. Now, Jim, before we dive into your topics, we did have a question that came in from Rick. Um, can't remember if I um, sent it to you, but in any event, I'm sure you can um, you can uh, deal with it on the fly. Uh, he writes, uh, I enjoyed part two of 2023 year-end uh, conversation or group conversation and the look ahead. As regards to upcoming interview with Jem, he mentioned in a recent interview that he thought the recent spike in SOFA was a canary in the coal mine. Would you please ask him to explain on that? Uh, what are the implications and risks that he sees? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, what that tells you is that there is not, given uh, a um, the amount of issuance that's happening, and the uh, the Treasury's dependence on issuing in the short end of the curve and, and kind of leaning against that liquidity, which is kind of the last kind of real solid uh, source of liquidity there in reverse repo, that even that is fragile at times of relatively what you would consider otherwise liquid uh, environments um, at the end of the month. And and uh, you know if if we're going to get spikes and 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 so for doing during uh, you know a November end of month right or and we saw it a little bit again at the at, uh, end of December when things are liquidity is broadly very strong and you're seeing lots of other things that would otherwise be supportive what happens when you have illiquidity and I think that's what I mean by canary in the coal mine um, you know when you start to see those clues in otherwise placid times you have to really think to yourself, okay, what, what happens, you know, when things are illiquid and then we're in the same situation. And, and it's just a a clue to to how kind of, uh, issuance uh, is starting to bleed out the amount of supply that's out there. And, and that can mean, you know, aggressive and volatile moves across markets, particularly in the treasury market, um, and, and, uh, and, and other kind of things that are related, uh, you know, uh, constellations of, of the treasury market. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, on that note, I was um, either listening to some podcast or reading something um, not too long ago, and someone brought up the point that actually maybe the Treasury is a little bit, quote-unquote, in default with the law about how much they can issue in the short end and how much they have to issue in the long end and the balance between the two. I haven't seen anything about it since, um, but, you know, it's interesting if they really have been. Um, I think that's something we'll dive into, Niels. Okay, um, But I think Great. it's important to note that, like, you know, now that interest rates are coming down a bit or have until today, let's say, um, it gives an incentive if the economy, if the market's hanging in and we're past the beginning of the year for Treasury to shift that balance a bit and go longer duration. And I think that dynamic is actually going to be uh, important on board. Okay. Yeah. No, no. Uh, very good. Very good. All right. Well, let's jump into your topics and focus on them and where we will, as I mentioned, look into uh, the crystal ball and discuss what may uh, lie ahead uh, of us in 2024. I think most people listening to us today will agree that the last couple of years have been pretty difficult to navigate with lots of uncertainty. And as a person born in Denmark, all I can say is that 2024 already started with a bit of a bombshell because 
on New Year's Eve, our queen of 52 years announced out of the blue that she will be abdicating in about 10 days. So we're certainly off to another year of surprise. Um, let's see if that spills over to to the market. So far, I think that her, her news is, is pretty un, unrelated to what's going on in the market. Uh, anyways, I'm going to sort of give you a little bit of a prompt uh, in terms of the topics, and then we can sort of uh, uh, discuss that. One of the things that I've... Um, uh, I heard someone talk about it the other day as well. Um, and I think it's interesting because when we look into a new year, often we look at what we expect the data to be, right? But actually his point was, well, maybe we need to look much more in terms of what has happened in the past in order to see what's coming ahead. And um, and I think that ties well into the first point you wanted to talk about um, because you wanted to talk about some of the trends that we had seen in recent time and lead that as a kind of look into the new year. Yeah, great, great lead in here. Um, absolutely. If we stopped and looked at what happened, let's take markets aside and actually look at what has happened in 2023, all the things that you and I have been talking about for three years did not reverse in any way. If anything, they accelerated. Um, and those things are, you know, labor, you know, populism, all of the uh, the trends behind um, uh, not just labor rights and and uh, everything along those lines, but you know, there's been an acceleration. Their protectionism accelerated. You know, U.S. v. China, um, lots of policies passed this year, kind of uh, accelerating the the bifurcation of the you know the world economy. Um, OPEC got you know, came in the fray multiple times, right, um, uh, you know, to try and support oil and, and to do, um, you know, and there's all kinds of other resource scarcity, again, things that we've talked about um, and, and entities flexing their muscles geopolitically and using those resources. S simple geopolitics, you know, we've gone from a, a continu continuing war, Russia, the Ukraine, to now to a war in the Middle East, um, uh, which very much, in my opinion, is tied into that bigger picture. You know, it's a second front, I would argue, on a, on a much larger global war. And so all of these things are not just, you know, they're, they're speaking to the broader structural secular trends that we've been talking about and how those aren't going away. And those are only becoming more and more entrenched. And, and again, uh, we've laid out a, a broad roadmap for why that is and why that will continue. And I think that's important. We are always on the lookout for counter factuals or other things that that would make us uh, doubt that broad thesis because that structural thesis is so important to the broad investment view and all those things have been not only affirmed but um, you know have, have had an exclamation point put at the end of them this year and I think that is very interesting in the context of what markets have done which are you know in, in lots of ways equity markets risk assets have uh, you know growth versus value we've had a lot of moves that are really counter trend to uh to those things that have now started as trend and i think that speaks to some of the you know performance of certain strategies and things that we we've talked about as well and i think that's important to keep an eye on and understand um you know the real big questions here is 2023 was was that in terms of certain asset performance um counter trend or uh is it uh, a, a new trend, right? Is it a new, are we moving away? And all the data underneath the hood, we can talk about cyclical effects and things that are happening, but is that affecting the broad uh, structural trend? And, and everything that we're seeing says this was a counter trend year to a broader trend. And I think that's an important thing to keep an eye on and focus on when you're looking at what happened this year. And there are lots of clues to that in markets also under the hood. It's not just the facts that we're seeing in the headlines and what's happening. But you can actually kind of tease out a lot of these things um, as well. And I, I think a lot of that happens um, and tends to happen historically. And this speaks to our approach um, when positioning gets offsides. And, you know, in the long term, again, we say this again, again, but markets are a weighing machine. These things do matter. But, it, but things don't go in a straight line because people uh, start to, to absorb the narrative of what's happening and understand what's happening. That knowledge is ball dampening. There is a a counter positioning against it. And that can cause pretty big and violent moves um, that often have to convince that narrative that, that it's not the case anymore, have to squeeze out that positioning. And that supply and demand or that voting machine really needs to get back in line 
um, for the next resumption of the trend to continue. And and I think that's really what we're, we've seen this year. I mean, if you look at kind of how people were positioned at the beginning of 2023 versus how they are now, uh, broad narrative and sentiment, all of these things have changed, obviously, dramatically. All of that follows price, right? And and um, and so I think that's important. Uh, when these opportunities, um, you know, come back to the, these secular opportunities that you're, you're, you continue to play, um, now cyclically in terms of positioning come into line, that is when the biggest opportunities exist in markets. Um, and we really believe that's what's setting up um, here into 2024. Um, I think you can see that again and again. If we look at the last 40 years, and we've speak, spoken this uh, before, you know, there was a clear structural trend. If you bet growth versus value, if you you know bought the dip on risk assets aggressively into all the dips, if you you know, or uh, or long bonds as a hedge against your uh, equities. Um, all of these things, uh, and we could go on and on. To all those trends. There's a bunch of other geopolitical, you know, bet on emerging markets in China. You know, it could go on and on. Um, you did incredibly well if you got the structural trend right for 40 years. You are an incredibly wealthy individual, um, despite major drawdowns in t- 2008, 2009. Uh, you know, major drawdowns, a uh, tech bubble, 2000. Uh, you know, one, uh, 2000, 2001, 2002, you know, 70% type drawdowns, right? So um, I think the key is to understand what is the bigger structural trend, what's happening, and then, you know, when the opportunity presents itself uh, uh, cyclically to really continue to push on those trends over a longer structural period of time. And I, I really do believe if you look at the macro and understand what's happening, that that those structural trends that I believe will be here 15 years or so um, are, are not only alive and well, but accelerating. And uh, we're looking for opportunities to to get back into all those trades aggressively um, as we enter these windows. Now, I, 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 mean, I couldn't agree more. And um, But it's, you know, I still feel that when we have these conversations, uh, not necessarily with the people who listen to us, but I think in the world at large and uh, among a bigger uh, group of, of, of investors, I'm not so sure that they have fully embraced what you're laying out. And I wonder if you think that at the end of the day, it all comes down to how you view the interest rate environment. Therefore, also the inflation environment, of course. But but I mean, um, you know, last year, I mean, people couldn't couldn't get, you know, couldn't get started quick enough to buy bonds. And even some of the really smart guys that we've had on the show, you and I, that we've talked to, I mean, they got bullish on bonds even in 2022. Uh, you know, so so there is this kind of, um, I think, framework uh, out there still uh, where people believe that interest rates really ought to go back to something that is much lower than what we saw uh, doing this year, and and that's the way it'll play out. So, one, do you agree that it really does boil down to 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 that part of the financial um, world, and um, and how do we then dissect that uh, from there? That is the biggest question. You're absolutely right, Nils. Um, you know what is happening to inflation and what is happening to interest rates. Now, that is a representation of what's happening underneath the hood, right? Uh, you know, what drives inflation is demand versus supply. And it's that simple. Um, and uh, interest rates are driven ultimately by inflation. So I think we need to start with inflation and supply versus demand in the economy. Uh, it's that simple. Um, and the question is globally, uh, where are we going to be, you know, in terms of that demand uh, in the market? And and it really Again, there are two components to that. There's a cyclical component, which comes and goes, right? That will people, you know, the, there'll be a reaction function to re-stimulate if, if the economy, you know, if demand is weak, um, et cetera. But then there's a much more important structural element, which happens secularly, and which is what's happening to uh, money going to the bottom versus money going to the top, right? What's going on, you know, to the, to the people, to the consumption engine, the demand side, and versus the supply side. And this is how I think about it, right? And and the reality is globally, there's not just a broad demand for demand side economics, right? As opposed to supply side economics. Um, but there's uh, it's gotten to a point of political um, action. And, and what is, how can we have, depending on politics, seems like, oh, that's, 
that's a dangerous game. How how can we be so confident that that lower you know quartile, that lower fifty percent even is is going to get more of the share of of um, of growth going forward? And the answer to me is is simple. It's the fact that the younger generation, right, um, who has been labor, and we've talked about this, right, it's been labor for 40 years, their whole lifetime um, has, has essentially dramatically under, underperformed and now is coming to political dominance. It's that simple. You know, if you go talk to any millennial on down, the amount of just like when you say these words to them, the amount of like uh, the, their eyes light up, they, they say, yes, this is true. Like I, we need to fix these things. There is an underlying deep, uh, you know, emotional um, feeling that, that, you know, this system is not fair and that, the, that, that lack of, there needs to be some redistribution um, or, or at least more fairness put upon the system. And that is true here in the United States, that's true in Europe, that's true in Australia, that's true in Asia. Anywhere you go, you talk to people, this is the sentiment and it is widespread and universal. And that is not going, you know, you pulled that 10 years ago versus you told it, pulled it five years ago versus you pulled it now. Um, those, are in, those are only increasing at this point, uh, right? As baby boomers who, you know, where the divide exists, but generationally are dying off and uh, these these people are growing. You know, this generation is growing to a political dominance, and and I think that is going to create, as we've seen, we've been saying this for three years, more and more policy that 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 helps those people. Um, that's it's that simple. You know, I'm looking for counterfactuals all the time, and again, we looked at the trends this year. None of these things went backwards; they're just going forward, and 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 so that that's going to create a very at very least a a lot more money to demand. And uh, ironically, and this is an important piece, the more that we send more money to demand, um, you know, by by uh, you know by fiscal policy, by protectionism, by labor rights, however you know, um, uh, however we do it, that creates higher inflation levels, which then pushes interest rates higher, and higher interest rates actually pull money away from capital and the rich, and that is actually pulling money away from supply. So not only are you increasing demand, that would be enough, right? But you're removing supply. And so this whole engine that we've had, which has been deflationary, which has been sending money to supply and remote, like not giving enough to demand, is now being reversed and giving money to demand and pulling money away from supply. And this whole cycle, once it gets started, is um, it, it doesn't go in a straight line. It accelerates. Because the more entrenched the psychology of inflation becomes for multiple reasons, then People start pulling forward demand. Uh, you know, we know the whole uh, storyline here. Um, eventually, it burns itself out, and uh, the young become older, and they, uh, they, the, the inequality becomes a bit more balanced, and then we go into the next cycle. But this is, um, you know, this is just the the tip of the you know the, just the beginning of this broad cycle, and that's we know that because the generation is just coming, starting to become you know politically dominant, um, and we haven't we've just started to address some of that inequality. We are making progress towards it. Um, I mean, if you look at the numbers in the last um, eight years, there's been a significant amount of, of um, money going to the bottom quartile and a significant improvement there. But it is still a very small fraction of, of kind of where um, it would need to go to get back to where it was 40 years ago. And I think that's those are the most important things in my mind. And, and, and you know, again, those are the most important things because they drive uh, everything. They don't just drive uh, inflation and interest rates. They drive deglobalization, right, and protectionism. They drive geopolitical conflict, um, resource scarcity, all these other things we've talked about. It be, you go from a, com, com, uh, you know, a very cooperative environment globally and corporate profit-focused environment to a very competitive environment where people are more focused on the people of their country as opposed to the broad GDP and growth globally of their corporations. And and that is a very dangerous time. Uh, it tends to lead to crisis and political upheaval. And, and so it, that sounds like all the bad stuff, right? But there are good things that come through these periods. We've seen them again and again, ultimately. But it usually is a very volatile, very painful time, um, you know, at least uh, for a decade or two. 
One of the things that I'm thinking of as I hear you uh, speak about that and speak about inflation, speak about the the younger generation, I think about the dangers that I don't think they necessarily completely realize just yet from the fact that that it became popular, I don't even know how many years ago, maybe it's 10, maybe it's 15, to become freelancer and a contract worker and and all of that stuff where yeah it all sounds great and you can you know have multiple employers so to speak but you don't and and of course the company many companies thought yeah that's great we don't have to play pay uh, for uh, you know health insurance and 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 all of those things so it became it becomes cheaper and i worry about the time when this generation who may not have then have saved up uh, or have the benefits um, big enough um, pension essentially for when they get older, realize that, oh, shoot, we should have thought of this 10 years ago or five years ago and 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 it all goes into reverse. Now, we obviously saw a little bit this year or last year, I should say, uh, with the uh, unions uh, striking uh, against the car dealers. And I think also in lots of other countries where uh, perhaps the employers have had the upper hand uh, for a long time, I think that those things are changing. Um, and and the other thing I wanted to mention uh, before I forget, um, I do agree with you about uh, you know demand and so on and so forth. And you know, but I'm also I'm actually when I look when I think about interest rates, what I worry about is is the thing where maybe we actually don't have a, a an economy that fires on all cylinders, yet interest rates keeps keeps going higher. And because interest rates obviously are not just, and, and maybe uh, I remember this from, from my early days in, back in the 80s where, uh, you know, the Berlin Wall went down. I was a government bond dealer back then and interest rates went up uh, a, a lot. Uh, a part of that was just the uncertainty that this new world uh, situation created. And so what I really worry about is that we get to a point where uh, the market demands a higher premium to buy the public the, the the government debt essentially and therefore also the corporate corporate debt and, and so on and so forth. That that's kind of one of the things that I think about as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh you're hearing a lot of people say the this is what I talk about, you know, positioning how it matters and how you want to re-enter when the when the narrative changes. You hear a lot of people saying the words soft landing. You heard that anywhere lately? Uh saying the word uh Goldilocks. I've heard that a lot lately as well. Um, and what I think people fail to realize is how closely connected Goldilocks and soft landing are to stagflation, which is almost the worst thing. They almost connect on the other side of the circle, right? And, um, you know, there's this tenuous feeling of, oh, everything's perfect. Everything's in the worst possible um, uh, situation. And, and my view is broadly that, that we are heading towards a more stagflationary environment. Um, it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, uh, growth is the you know, catastrophically bad. It doesn't mean that um, inflation is necessarily uh, incredibly awful, but uh, you could really end up in a situation, and I think that's where we're heading here, where cyclical pressures to try and control secular structural inflation push us into just lower than inflation than it was, but still elevated inflation, while growth itself is in a really bad place. And, um, and this is the problem that we have with trying to control uh, what is increasingly a structural uh, inflationary picture with cyclical pressures and cyclical tools. And and I think, you know, we're going to go through more of a, a, a stagflationary environment as a result. What do you do in a stagflationary environment? I, um, you know, when, when you're in a massive inflationary environment, okay, pretty easy. You cyclically try and remove demand and try and bring down that inflation as long as growth doesn't get too bad. But now we're entering the period where growth is going to, is dramatically slowing, right? Um, what do you do now? Uh, and that's the Fed being in a box. The Fed has, uh, has now limited uh, things that they can do. If they do pivot truly here, um, if that is what happens, let's say the economy, the economy slows down dramatically and markets pull back 20% or something, you know, presumably they'll, in an election year, you'll not only get, uh, you know, fiscal stimulus as a response, but you'll get uh, monetary, you know, get a bit of a pivot to help support the economy. But what if inflation's still at two, three percent at that point with 
with a significant pullback and recession in the economy. What do you think is going to happen to inflation? I mean, again, we've seen this story before. You're now removing those cyclical pressures against the structural inflation, uh, and now you're going the other way cyclically. And that's when you get a resumption of, of inflation. Um, yes, it'll accelerate the demand picture, right? Um, and uh, But that demand picture will now be out of balance with, with, with a supply situation that we know in, uh, is quite bad across lots of different markets in, in, um, in the U.S., um, so, and globally, um, so, uh, you know, again, next, the next chapter is going to be interesting. Uh, the most interesting chapter in the sixties and seventies I'll note was that the, 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 not the first move in inflation, it was the second, um, you know, the second, like higher is when long-term yields started to break out when, when, uh, the, uh, there was an entrenchment of the psychology of inflation, which really accelerated inflation dramatically that, that started in 1970, um, 71 when we, when, when, um, actually not, not Burns, but William McChesney Martin pivoted and, and, uh, really started to simulate, um, again into a, you know, a year and a half recession, a mild one, you know, a year and a half recession in the United States. And that eventually led, you know, again, from inflation went from to six and a half and then down to two, so, you know, sound familiar. And then went all the way to 12 uh, and it, it, it topped in 12 and, a half, 12 and a half or so in 74. Um, and, and then deep recession as, as the Fed cyclically tried to push against it again, brought inflation down to four and a half, but into a deep recession. And that's that stagflationary type situation. We saw that second time around. And then Burns pivoted again, famously. And then inflation went to 18 or 17 or so percent. So this is, again, it's not a straight line. Um, you know, the secular realities you need to keep an eye on um, in the context of uh, other cyclical realities. And people are so used to playing that cyclical game because that's all that mattered for 40 years. It was very easy, two-dimensional for the Fed to just push against a deflationary environment with, um, you know, cyclically inflationary tools. That's a much easier. You get the best of both worlds under that environment. Now the Fed is in the opposite situation, and it's a much harder game to play, and there are very few things that they can do as long as we choose to maximize median outcomes. Yeah. I know it's still early where you are uh, on this uh, Friday morning, uh, so you may not have caught this story. I think I saw it first time uh, appearing uh, maybe last night, and it is related to inflation. I read it on Bloomberg, but it's on many different uh, outlets. Um, and it's about the largest, I think the largest, um, supermarket chain in France, Carrefour, um, but actually, it, it, it appears now that it's also other uh, countries um, as well, where they've simply removed all products from PepsiCo because they simply cannot accept the price increases that they have demanded for their goods. So while officials and some experts are busy saying, oh, well, inflation, we got that under control, it seems like it's very different when you're out on the street and, uh, you know, what price levels we are seeing in reality. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a big uh, dispersion, as we've seen, not just in markets, but in terms of inflation and types of inflation, not to mention um, kind of where in the economy uh, different, different pressure points are hitting. And that's why I say under the hood, yes, we can look at broad markets, but under the hood, it's not, it's not just what happened and we're seeing the headlines. If you look under the hood, you see these things still very much alive and well. Structural, secular uh, inflationary pressures are still very strong. Core inflation is still, you know, 4% after yeah. all these, you know, taking interest rates to five and a half over this period. Um, uh, yes, you've had the benefits of, of um, you know, oils decline and, and you know, uh, other things coming down, right? Because of the cyclical slowdown broadly of the economy. And, and those things will... Um, will clearly bring down the headline number, but you have to worry about what happens when that those things are now reversed, which we know are just cyclical. Um, and, and, and there's, again, a lot of other clues under the hood. We're going to go into some other topics and move away from inflation and interest rates. And before we do so, I don't know whether this is the right time to, to bring it up, but there was one thing I was thinking about, and that is the word normal, meaning, you know, what, and I'm, I'm kind of not sure myself anymore. I mean, what, what is a normal world? What, what should, what should we 
expect more normal to look like um, after uh, everything we've been through, um, you know, in the financial world, but even in the world uh, at, at large. We're going to obviously come to that when we talk about the geopolitic. Um, but I, I wonder whether when you think about, you know, what what is normal uh, from your perspective? Uh, have you any any suggestions? Oh wow, Niels! Now, now this could be a. <laughs> I think we need a four hour podcast about what is normal. Uh, it's all about perspective. Uh, I mean, uh, times, right? Uh, you know, are we looking at a short window of what's normal in the context of of what? I mean, if we really want to talk in the bigger picture, what is normal? Um, you know, if you really want to zoom out, right, the last 200 uh, some years uh, of, of free market, uh, for, like the broad freedoms that people are given and in, in individual, um, you know, this is in the history of 4 billion years of animal history and a million, you know, is, is incredibly not normal. What's normal is survival of the fittest, everything accruing to the top power versus subjugation. Okay. So, you know, what is normal? Like uh, in the natural system, that is normal. Um, we've had uh, clearly a, a, a move globally towards a much more fair, equitable, just you know system that doesn't feel that way to people. But their their visions of normal have now adjusted to this world where things there is broad fairness and that we deserve some type of fairness and we could ask for that. That didn't used to be the case. People used to assume that they you know uh, emperors were kings or gods. They they deserved and were entitled to X right. Um, you just talked about, you know, the abdicate, you know, uh, the, the, the Danish yeah. uh, queen abdicating, yeah. um, you know, things have changed dramatically, but they've also swung to such a point that we now expect those things and not just expect them, uh, this younger generation. And I'm not being an old curmudgeon guy. This is just the reality, uh, expect a certain level of fairness and equity and equality. Um, and they're not the first generation to do this. Right. Um, but again, it's we keep going down that spectrum to a further and further way. We're almost like fairness is uh, assumed to be the the way uh, of the world or the way things should be. That uh, I would say, you know, the last forty years uh, have created this level of placidity and level of uh, expectations of also broad calm and peace. The technological development. This is also very rare and not normal, right? That's the longest period of peace we've seen globally. Um, maybe ever, right? Um, and a lot of that is driven by some very new, uh, I guess I guess we call abnormal things in history as one entity with complete control over the global economy, which is monetary policy and new tools and new experiments to help uh, you know, control the whole thing from afar. And that has led to, yes, great technological development, globalization, uh, high you know, uh, growth uh, rates broadly, um, but um, the cost of that is a move back towards this uh, uh, system, w which is a winner almost take all system, right? And and now these two things are in conflict, and we're trying to right kind of move back. The pendulum is swinging back. Um, now, a normalization, right, of back to something where the pendulum is not so far one way uh, and re from recent history to kind of where it's been in the last 250 years um, where, uh, you know, people are fighting back and trying to regain, uh, you know, the, their part of the, the economy will lead to a more now in the last 250 years, normal environment where market forces are more balanced, right. And lead to things, uh, you know, more, less compressed volatility, uh, more, uh, more policy changes and, 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 uh, geopolitical kind of movements, uh, less, more war, less peace, which again, in the broader history of things is, mm -hmm. is more normal. So a very complicated question again, that we could spend many hours on, but, but my, my view is in the shorter time frame. if you're looking at a broadly shorter time frame, I think there is a normalization. I think we can use that word to broader market history happening uh, with the uh, removal of the the compressing forces of low interest rates and free money. Um, and I think that will kind of broadly release and normalize a lot of the things that we thought were true and economists thought were true from prior uh, centuries here um, to a, a bit more normal in that sense. So, you know, in the very shorter picture, if we're not going back, uh, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, I think that is probably the more 
correct current answer to people's perspective. The reason why I wanted to bring up this, you know, what is normal type uh, question is, is, is the next topic that I know that you wanted to mention, and it has something to do with the election cycle in the US, I imagine. And if I think about what's going to happen 11 months from now, you know, the world can be very different a year from today, depending on the outcome of that election. And I don't mean just if Trump wins. Actually, what if it isn't Trump or Biden who wins? Uh, there is a, a third person in the in the in the in the race. So, so this is also why I think that is something we need to just uh, be aware of. We are in an election year, and and that's going to have massive implications for uh, for the world we live in. Not just an election year, an election year, and a broadly increasing populist right environment and where things are moving quicker and bigger macro shifts are happening um not all election years are created equal right uh, if we do believe we're broadly in a regime shift that election matters even more towards a potential release or step function in some of these these things so yes incredibly important um the last uh, election right uh led to um, you know, people will talk about COVID and uh, everything else, right? But but the reality is, it wasn't just COVID. It was the fact that uh, the change in in who was in charge as COVID happened led to a historic amount of fiscal policy, an order of magnitude more fiscal policy in real terms than we've ever seen. Again, an order of magnitude bigger than the New Deal. In inflation predicted terms, inflation adjusted terms. Now, compared to the size of the economy, the same amount, but that that's politics at work. That's the power and importance of elections at work. You could argue there would be a very different reaction function potentially. Again, it doesn't mean the secular trend would have changed, but at least the speed and move of that of this trajectory would have been uh, the path would have been very different. So I think you're absolutely right. This election really does matter, especially when we're looking over path and how does the next uh, two, four, you know, uh, maybe even eight years um, change um, as we're as we're moving along this timeline. One thing that we do know from elections is that there's more spending that goes into them, more policy promises, more stimulus that probably comes into it. That's why elections tend to perform better in those election years. That's not a coincidence, right? People uh, broadly want more and they, you know, politicians front load it and give it to them so they can get elected. Uh, it's all about incentives. Um, and so I think you can expect that. I think, uh, you know, if we were to get some volatility here in Q1, which is what we've been calling for, uh, you know, some give back of the recent gains, um, uh, I think it, uh, you can assume that the reaction function will be, you know, bigger than normal in this type of a year and faster than normal. Uh, I think policymakers might even want, you know, incumbents might even want a little bit of a pullback so they have an excuse to stimulate into the uh, elections right next year. The last thing any uh, incumbent wants is uh, economic, uh, you know, volatility into the election season. So, um, you know, uh, that will affect the path. And I think, it, you know, being aware of that is incredibly important to when you're drawing your distributions for what may or may not happen over certain timeframes in the next year. Um, so that's over the next year. Now, the question, you know, your real question was not what happens in the next year is why is this election important for going forward? Uh, how does this affect things there? And the amount of, uh, to your point, yes, a Trump election versus Biden will introduce significant changes in rhetoric and policy um, and will not only affect uh, things here in the United States, but obviously globally and, and, and uh, what will happen in terms of the path of geopolitical realities um, and maybe most importantly but you can't dismiss the third one which i think a lot of people are sleeping on which that you might get you know and maybe it's not this election cycle maybe it's the next one um but we'll see there's a higher and increasing probability of a very new entity whatever that is coming in and really changing things we saw this um yes we had a lot of change between different types of uh, different presidents, different types of presidents in the 60s and 70s, for example. There was more turnover, less eight-year kind of uh, incumbent um, presidents, much more, uh, you know, there, there were several assassinations. There are a lot more 
uh, other things that happened as well that I think you know people have to be aware of. Um, I think there's a big mismatch in particular between the age, right? Uh, this is becoming a big narrative and important to the younger generation between the age of these uh, both these politicians and uh, the political aspiration, the political dominance of a younger class, a uh, younger generation. And I think that is something people are sleeping on. That, I think that is right for somebody who is younger um, to come in and really speak and gain kind of broader political popularity. Um, and what that person brings in could make dramatic changes for positive or negative. Um, we don't know what that person is or who they look like or but that is an important thing that people are not thinking about. I think both of these candidates are incredibly unpopular. Um, and I think that's probably one of the more interesting things to your point. It's maybe what's happening on the third party. And, and, the, and, the, and you know, there is an incentive mismatch between the debate that's happening here and, and a broad demand to, to blow it all up and bring in something completely new. But that, that can make dramatic changes to markets, policy, global. I mean, at a very volatile time, you're introducing a potential unknown right, um, uh, to what's already a volatile situation. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And uh, of course, we we are incredibly US-centric because so much uh, really starts uh, with whatever the US decides financially or geopolitically. But of course, uh, a lot of the geopolitical uh, uncertainty right now is taking place much closer to where I am and uh, and also in the Far East. And the Middle East. Uh, so I, I know you, you, you've mentioned that uh, for, for a long time, that this is something we need to pay very close uh, attention to. Um, is that something that you've been thinking that uh, tells you that 2024 um, will lead to some kind of, how should I say, surprising next move in some of these conflicts or a new conflict for that matter? So I think 2024, um, because it's an election year, is leading to certain entities kind of waiting a little bit, right? They're saying, okay, we don't know what's going to happen this year. We're going to try and get involved in these elections. And you better believe like there is a broad pressure from both China, Russia, globally, the Middle East, all to try and affect this outcome because it is very important. And so there will be a lot of uh, both covert and uh, you know, overt ways of trying to affect the outcomes here. Um, and so in that sense, we can create some type of volatility and issues in the short term. That said, I think the biggest, if we're talking like uh, you know China moving on Taiwan or other things of that ilk, which is much kind of bigger, decisive actions, I think those are in a kind of pause mode until they can resolve who the candidate is and what the reaction function is of their adversaries. Um, and that's, again, just incentives on what you'd expect. That said, come November of 2024, um, once that decision is made, I think 20, late 2024, <clears throat> more importantly, 2025, becomes a very dangerous time, regardless of who becomes president, because it now is a new four-year cycle <clears throat> there's less stimulative issues from fiscal and whatever as well. And so stabilizing forces in that regard, but there's also just more volatile potential from entities that are heading along a secular path of, of confrontation. And I think that is something that I really worry about for 2025. I know we're talking about 2024, but I think that's an important dynamic to really think about as well. Um, but again, not a small thing that everybody is very focused on for not just, you know, what happens in the U S because it, what affects what happens globally um, in terms of the election. And I think lots of entities are going to be really, really trying to do all kinds of things, not just interfering with the election process itself, but really trying to do things that might make, uh, you know, current uh, entities unpopular or, you know, other entities that are counter their incentives. Um, yeah. But I, I hate to, I hate to add to your list of, uh, of things that uh, doesn't, uh, bode well um, and that is actually one thing is to talk about the external conflict I'm actually also really worried about internal conflicts in some of the bigger quote-unquote democracies that we have both in Europe and the US uh, we live in a very divided very tense environment at the moment and it doesn't seem like much needs to go wrong for things to really break out whether this is true or not but from what I hear and maybe this is from some of the uh, the more outspoken people that I come across, but they talk about how 
in the U.S., um, the, the, the whole demographics uh, have changed. You tend to move to states now that are more politically in line with yourself, and that's kind of actually leaves fewer swing states for, for the coming election, potentially, I guess. And and so, yeah, so lots of there are lots of moving parts at the moment, uh, and demographics, by the way, is also one of them in general, not just when it comes to elections. Yeah, I think the one thing I want to say, and this is, again, we've been very negative here and very kind of, uh, and, and for good reason, you know, because we're focusing on a shorter time frame. I do want to zoom out occasionally and 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 make sure we understand that, you know, the 60s and 70s, which I've referred to, everybody you talk to that lived through that generation, you know, felt like the world was coming apart at the seams. Um, you think we're at, at uh, kind of each other's throats now, right, uh, generationally. Uh, politically, um, almost nothing compared to what we saw during that period. And then go back again to the 1930s and 40s. I think we all know what happened in the 40s, right? In the 30s and the Depression. Um, you think things are coming apart at the seams now. It's all about perspective. Now, things did not ultimately come apart. It may have felt like it was, and it may have come close even. But I do believe in the ability of... Um, you know, given where we are in the cycle, that won't always be the case, right? Um, like global, bigger cycles, that there is still a um, a mismatch in power and uh, belief in kind of the 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 system that uh, you know the global system of, of freedom and democracy and uh, capitalism. That um, I do think these things will be revitalized and and you know be given another cycle, at least another forty years. Um, I don't think we're kind of at the end of it, although, you know, a lot of people, a lot of well-known people are out there saying, okay, things are going to change right away. I, I'm skeptical of that. I think there is still broad unanimity here in the U.S. and globally among the Western, you know, the the, the dominant economic and, and political powers in the world for a preservation of the system. And that's from left or and right in the U.S. It just, the problem is we've had 40 years of um, you know going again that into our corners, and part of that's driven by the Federal Reserve and the placidity. We haven't burned the underbrush uh, for forty years, and that creates a very dangerous situation. But guess what? If we burn down the forest, as long as it all doesn't, all the seedlings do not everything dies, um, it will rejuvenate a much healthier, more stable system for the next cycle. Now, fires are not fun. That's why this has been a negative conversation. Um, but what fires breed? is a revitalization in a health. Um, and we need crisis. We need crisis. If we eliminate crisis from the system, we do not re, re, re bolster the, the, the structures that were built um, in order to preserve all these things that, that, that we benefited from. So um, again, a little sign, a little note of optimism, but there's a lot of, uh, there'll be some fires between here. There'll be some crisis between here and there. But I think ultimately that is the most, you know, the thing that we can hope for uh, is, is that that is actually going to, you know, give us, you know, bring back the health and, and more balance to the system. I want to touch on one more thing uh, that I know you um, you wrote to me uh, or listed as a topic. And then I want to throw in a little bit of a teaser for a conversation you and I are going to record uh, next week. And so the first thing is just, well, we, we as you said, we've we've been a little bit gloomy about the outlook, concerned, let's put it that way, we've been concerned. It doesn't mean that markets actually go down uh, necessarily. And I think um, some people, perhaps including yourself, uh, might see some some fireworks before it all comes apart, and but not necessarily in the sectors that have been on fire this year, or last year, I should say. So how, how do you, uh, if you're really going to put on the crystal ball and, and give us a glimpse? Yeah, now we're zooming into very shorter timeframes. When we do that, the thing is that matters less are the kind of bigger macro things that matter over five-year or 10-year periods. What matters more is positioning uh, you know, flows broadly, uh, liquidity response from uh, the authorities that matter. And so if we zoom into that and look again, it's an election year, right? Um, first and foremost, there should be a positive reactionary force that comes against any slowdown, uh, both in the economy and in markets. So um, that uh, doesn't mean that we're not going to have that slowdown at this point. It does look like they've been pushing against trying to 
um, you know, up until this point, slow things down. And I think the economy is slowing broadly, despite what we're seeing in employment. The question is, do they go too far in that? And the answer broadly is yes. I think the pivot we saw took a lot of people by surprise. Yes, the minutes kind of walked it back a little bit recently, but but uh, you know the the fact that we've you know priced in six we priced in six cuts uh, in in a year all of a sudden um, uh, is pretty dramatic given you know that inflation is still at three on the core uh, you know at the headline and four in core, and you can't help but as I've said before you know wonder how much of that is political and, and that does not that's not a conspiracy theory we you know that's just the realities of um you know incentives um and so i you know i think i think we will continue to see that and that's more likely to lead to some type of uh positive uh liquidity situation right and and that can lead you know the way these things usually end is not with a they don't just kind of peter out and die uh you know there's generally some type of blow off kind of um, uh, move. Um, so um, in the very short term, again, we run almost 20%, or we did, and now we pulled back a bit um, uh, in a very short period of time. And that, that was based on a lot of positive seasonal flows that you and I talked about many times here and kind of saw coming. Um, you know, does it make sense in Q1 now to to see a little bit of the reversal of that, not just a little bit, maybe even more, right? Um, absolutely. Um, and I would I would expect that that if we if that becomes more than ten percent in the market, which I think a very I think we're likely to get um, a more than ten percent decline at some point here in in Q one, um, you better believe that that again uh, people are looking you know entities political forces and whatnot are looking for more and more excuses to continue to push against that and and the deflationary narrative will come back in full force. It already is kind of uh, you're you're hearing it more and more. Um, and, and I think that will give an excuse for a lot of the, the resumption of trend, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, from a much bigger perspective. And, and I think you'll start to see other areas perform better into the next rally, which will be things that are, um, you know, much more uh, that have underperformed in 2023, which are, are much more structural to uh, government spending, um, uh, inflationary pressures. Uh, I think people, you know, I think there will be a broad move away from the the trade that has worked as well as it has. That doesn't mean those those things will perform as well, but I think there'll be similar to what we saw in early 2022 and even 2021, where there you saw the growth value rotation really before the market rolled over. I think you might start to see um, a lot of that, uh, especially as as I think we'll probably see a steepening of the curve. Um, which will, I think, um, uh, you know, given that uh, interest rates will be coming down broadly, um, will be very interesting if, if the back on the curve stays relatively strong. Um, again, that could then lead to more inflation for several reasons, as I've mentioned before as well. So, it, you know, if I'm, if I'm forced to look in the crystal ball, um, I think there's two paths, one in, in which we, a decline starts some, somewhere between here and end of February. And, uh, and and ends uh, broadly uh, in mid mid March um, to late March, um, and it, it, you know in that case a you know a buyback that's forced by both a quick pivot in fiscal and monetary. Uh, I think that's uh, the most likely path, uh, and then a relatively strong period until election season, maybe you know the fall, um, where we could get some some tumult uh, into the election season. You know, and then based on outcomes, et cetera, I'd see twenty twenty five is quite dangerous, as I mentioned. Um, the other path would be, you know, uh, we don't get a, enough of a slowdown. Today's number was particularly interesting to that. Uh, enough of a market decline. Uh, there's, there's still, you know, this this market chases or is more stable during this period than then we don't get a real, you know, enough of something for there to be a, a, a reaction from, from uh, fiscal or monetary, and this thing kind of runs early. Right, and then as you get in the fall, things are more dangerous because you've kind of had a real, real positive outcome in markets, and uh, you know it's that actually, in my opinion, is actually even more dangerous in some ways because then uh, you're really set up uh, for for something that's more dangerous in 2025. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of dangerous situations, um, it's always dangerous when we invite David Dredge to the uh, to the podcast, and uh, and but it's also become a very nice tradition actually because. Um, he, I think he's been on the show uh, in January now. Three, it's going to be the third year in a row, more or less. Uh, and he has this uh, wonderful way of framing things and uh, and setting us up uh, for the year ahead. 
And I'm sure part of the conversation we're going to record next week, um, part of this will touch on uh, something that actually is also really changing, but maybe more under the radar than uh, most investors, uh, or for, for many investors. And that's what's going on in, in Japan. You know, they are changing, um, well, they could actually still be tightening in 2024, while the rest of the world is now thinking about uh, cutting rates, uh, which is a complete game changer, of course. And even though it's not massive amounts, I, I don't see uh, them going to 5% or anything like that, it can have massive implications, especially because they are the biggest creditor country. And uh, the question is, in terms of, you talk about flows, I mean, what happens in a country where the home bias is pretty strong to begin with, if they suddenly have a chance to buy JGBs at 1% uh, instead of minus, you know, 0.1% or whatever it's been down to, how does that affect, say, the demand for US debt or other debt that needs to be issued? Things like that. I'm not sure exactly what, what it will affect, but I think it, it could be an interesting place to watch. So two things. One, David Drudge uh, is one of the best, right? He, uh, what he is best at is, you know, global, uh, you know, frontier, all kinds of emerging markets, everything globally and going to all the most kind of uh, finding the little spots where things can be the most, um, you know, impactful uh, globally. Um, you know, my strength obviously is, uh, you know, U.S. focused, uh, broad macro. Now, where do those things intersect We've seen an incredible dispersion in the in recent history, uh, where non-vol core centers are moving, and there's opportunities. Whereas the the center has been pinned due to structured product issuance. Right? Um, what we're I believe we're seeing, and I haven't really said much about this in this uh, this episode, is uh, as interest rates go lower, some of that structured product issuance, a significant amount, can can really start to go the other way. And I think that, which I'd probably called the kind of the, the Dutch boy with his thumb in the dike is actually, um, you know, he, he's been really well fed because interest rates have been high. If we do see a reversal in that in the short term, I think that could be very interesting to unpinning really the, uh, the vol at the center. And, and the risk there is that broad volatility increases, but the places that are at greatest risk then, which I would put Japan as, as out there to kind of uh, connect here, all of a sudden uh, become much more at risk. And the places where vol has been the most compressed because of uh, U.S. involvement and broad volatility compression, again, Japan, create dramatic opportunities. Again, I've talked about this before, but this idea of sumo markets, there are tremendous pressures building in the system. It's like tectonic plates, right? They're pushing up against each other. And when you have that much pressure and all of a sudden something moves, things can be dramatic and violent. It is not the same thing as placidity where there are no pressures, but in markets, and, and when you look at a VIX number or something, you look at it, you say, oh, things are placid. Things aren't happening. Nothing's happening. That doesn't, that's not the truth in this global world. You have to understand that they are, the pressures are building and building. They're just balanced in a lot of ways. And somewhere like Japan uh, represents a, a, you know, a very, very potential source of violent volatility from a very low level. Um, if those tectonic plates start to shift and become unbalanced a bit. And I do think that's broadly where we're going in the next two years, year and a half. Uh, hard to pick out the exact timeline, but the probabilities are dramatically increasing. Um, there will have to be some normalization. Japan is very dependent on the U.S. Uh, and particularly U.S. monetary authorities and a loss, uh, an increase in volatility or, you know, the Fed starting to lose, uh, you know, control it would be, in my opinion, the greatest sign that that trade starts to really perform dramatically. And I do see that happening down the road in the next year now. Well, I'm excited for uh, for our upcoming uh, recording next week, that's for sure. And of course, the episode will come out probably the following week or so. Jim, this was wonderful. Great way to uh, kick off uh, the year. Love your uh, big picture thoughts. I'm sure uh, the audience uh, do uh, as well. You have a wonderful community following you, uh, a really strong following. Now, if you enjoy these conversations, uh, why not uh, share them? Why not go to uh, iTunes or um, Spotify, um, Amazon, wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us a little rating and not a little rating, but a rating and review. 
and um, and we would be so uh, appreciative of that. Next week, I'm back with Rob. Um, so this is going to be uh, lots of fun. And if you have any questions uh, for him, um, please do email them to info at toptradersunplugged.com. From Jim and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. Until such time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.